Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager, and this is the second part of our episodes on alien abduction. Now, if you haven't listened to the first part, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. That's where we really establish the grounding for what we're talking about here, what is the common narrative surrounding alien abductions, and then what is the, the the more common sort of scientific explanation for what's going on. We looked at false memory implantation. We talked about ideas surrounding sleep paralysis, things like that. This episode is going to be more focused on the cultural fabric surrounding the 20th century and how it kind of led us to this experience really being popular between the 60s leading up to the 90s and then kind of fading out after that. Yeah, and this is a yeah, this this is a, a really chewy part of this uh, this exploration of 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 uh, alien abduction because on one hand, if you're looking at it from a purely skeptical point of view and saying, "Yes, this is just uh, you know, phenomena occurring within the brain this is these are memory uh, false memories and memory distortions then you still have to say well how does this narrative get stitched together where does this ultimately absurd narrative come together of these sort of embryonic creatures arriving in flying ships and uh and sticking probes into our bodies like where does this come from and <laughs> what does it say about the culture from which it emerges yeah. and even if you're not like 100% skeptical on all of this, if you're more of a believer, like even some of the believers, uh, you know, voice their concerns ab- about uh, about the the various cultural and media uh, elements that could be coloring uh, alleged actual abduction experiences. Right. So, There's like a weird feedback loop going on. It's yeah. like which came first, the the alien abduction or the science fiction after it, and then. You know what I kept thinking of was that they they talk about how this really started in the 40s, right? And mm-hmm. then I was thinking about the 1950s was really that big boom in comic books for like science fictiony horror kind of comics where yeah. like Mars Attacks style aliens would come to Earth, right, and like have like uh what those like weird ray guns, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Science fiction was exploding, and 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 also this this rap. That's the one of the big things I think is that the 20th century. Uh, is is the the ground from which all this emerges and it's a time of just such rapid advancement technological advancement like this is the this is the the century in which humans split the atom yeah. uh this is this century where the the distances between uh the various corners of the earth shrank in the advent of uh of of transportation technology mass communication uh comes together and then it's it's also just a time of enormous social change and as we all know, like when there's enormous social changes that's occurring, uh, you know, rather swiftly, uh, this this creates um, this can create anxiety. This can create this certainly creates hope, but uh, it's going to have a, a cultural effect on people as they're trying to come to terms with what the world is doing and what the world is becoming and how they fit into that world. Right, and the way that these cultural effects seem to be taking place is through what we referred to briefly in the last episode as false memories, right? This is the Mm -hmm. terminology that's being used to describe this. Psychologists believe these stories, they're they're distorting things like childhood memories, uh, where an alien is standing in for uh, a person who abused the, the abductee, right? But then this has been countered by, uh, abductees who say, well, I never experienced child abuse, right? 
And then you've got false memory implantation as an idea that it's not that you're remembering something that didn't happen. It's that during the the uh, therapy session in which you were trying to figure out what happened, somebody accidentally implanted a false memory there. It's that easy. Yeah. Now, one of the the possible explanations that I, I I'm not saying I buy into this 100 percent, but yeah. I think it's an interesting read. Uh, on what could be occurring. Uh, this comes from uh, psychologist Frederick V. Malmstrom. Yeah, so in in this theory that's presented by Malmstrom, the abductees are remembering their births, and the spaceship that they're seeing is actually a symbol of their mother's birth canal. Now, again, here's another one that's been refuted by abductees because they say, well, I want under a cesarean birth. So how would I possibly remember the birth canal? Why would you possibly have any trauma about that? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you know who would have loved this theory? Huh? Giga. Giga oh, would have loved yeah. It. yeah. Yes, very much so. <laughs> but, but you know, when you break down the science of it, I, I think it has a lot going for it because you have to consider newborns have limited visual capabilities. They can't see very far or in very much detail and color distinctions barely register. So... This uh, astigmatism smears the images that they behold. So what do they see when they look at their mom's face? They see two large dark eyes and an otherwise blurred and colorless face. So you can yeah. make the argument that when that, uh, you know, that, that cooing wide-eyed baby is looking up at you, mom, or, or dad, or anybody, any caregiver, they're seeing a gray alien staring down at them. And so the argument here is the other yeah, we're, we're, we're drawing on that that old memory that's, yeah. that's sort of rising to the surface, uh, perhaps in combination with any number of the scenarios that we discussed in part one. Something to remember the next time like a friend or a coworker brings in a newborn and everybody just huddles around that newborn and just, you know, gets right on top of it in its personal space. Mm -hmm. You are potentially creating a future alien abductee experience. Yeah. Yeah. That kid's going to end up just being addicted to XCOM based on, <laughs> on what he experienced here today in the, in the workspace. But actually getting into the false memory implantation aspect here, it's important to recognize that hypnotherapists that are involved in this, they're actually earnest about their desire to help a patient. I think it's really easy for us to say like either, oh, the patient's lying or the hypnotherapist is like maliciously manipulating them, right? That doesn't seem to be the case. But experimental psychology has shown that it's actually relatively easy to implant false memories in an individual's mind. And in a 1994 study, researchers were able to implant false memories of getting lost in a shopping mall in participants. Another 2001 study showed that even when events were unlikely, for instance, an abduction by aliens, they can be implanted as false memories. Suggestive information presented to the participants can actually increase the plausibility of a supposedly implausible event to them. And this was further shown in a 2009 study by Otgar, Kandel, and Merkelbach. Oh, and also Wade. Four, four <laughs> authors there. And they showed that you can implant false memories of alien abduction by paying special attention to the way that participants describe the event during an interview. And what they would do is they, this also seems crazy to me. Uh, they used children as participants and I wrote in the notes, what? <laughs> they would take kids and they showed them the event during an interview. They, they showed them these fake newspaper articles and that would allow them to implant 
memories of alien abduction being a thing. Then the kids, these were 7 to 12-year-olds, and 33% of them developed false memories during the first interview. Then they did a secondary interview. Another 6% developed false memories. The younger children were more likely to develop false memories than the older children were. But then get this, children were equally likely to develop a false memory about alien abduction as they were to develop a false memory about choking on candy. So they had a control group where they were trying to also implant memories of them choking on candy. It it worked the same way. So the unlikelihood didn't seem to be a factor. Well, I do have to just throw in from my own experience that the memories of, of small children, are, it's strange because I'll take my, my my son to school, pick him up, and I'll say, hey, what would you do today? I don't know. I don't remember. Like, just no. And then he'll say, hey, do you remember that dead spider we found like three years ago? Right. And he'll bring yeah. up the, this, this, this minute memory. It's like, why are you, why do you remember that? Why are you remembering it now? And then there's also, there also be, there are also incidents where there will, there will be false memories. Either it'll be something that he doesn't remember, but we have told him about. And then he ends up, he thinks he has a memory of it. Yeah. Or it'll be something that he just kind of completely fabricated. Like he knows it happened and then he has, a memory that he's put together of it. And mm-hmm. I think if we, if each of us like, thinks back to our earliest memories, we run into that, that situation. You have to ask yourself, is this something that I actually remember yeah. happening? Is this something that my parents told me about? And I'm kind of, I've made a memory out of being told what I should have experienced. Yeah. I've been thinking about this lately. Um, my sister's grandfather-in-law just passed away mm-hmm. and she's been trying to explain to her three-year-old son they live in the ha- they lived in the house with her grandfather in law, okay. and she's trying to explain to her son where Papa went. And he's three; he doesn't have an understanding of the difference between life and death, right? He's still struggling with that concept. So she says to him, "Papa is in heaven now." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, and it gives him an idea of like, okay, there's this physical place called heaven that that he went to, and I'll see him right. again there or something like that, right? And but she's having a really hard time with it. And then he'll, he'll occasionally like walk in the living room and be like, where's Papa? And then he'll go, he'll, cor- he'll self correct and he'll go, Oh wait, that's right. He's in heaven. And then just kind of, you know, trot on and, and keep doing his little kids stuff. And, uh, it, it keeps making me think like, well, I, from my experience, I don't really retain any memories from that age, but is this something that he's going to remember later on in his teenage years? And he'll be like, oh yeah, like I had this firmly embedded idea of heaven as a, as a place on earth. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, I actually, I know somebody who had a, you know, similar, everybody has situations I think where uh, you know, an elder member of the family dies while the child is too young to really understand yeah. it. And so they told him, well, that, you know, this individual's in the sky now, like he went to the sky. Okay. But I think it ended, if I remember correctly, it ended up making the child a little afraid, more afraid of roller coasters because they did not want to go into the sky. That the sky was like where everybody who had died yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's tricky. Oh, that's it's, a it's creepy tricky. idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. So all of this stuff leads scientists to the conclusion that the improbability of an event isn't actually a leading factor in false memory implantation success. And this leads us back to good old McNally and Clancy, who we, we talked about a lot last episode. They researched memory function in women who believed they'd recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse. And they actually found that such victims were more likely to create false memories of non-traumatic events 
months when they were visiting in the laboratory than women who had always remembered being sexually abused or women who had never been abused. So to study this further without unethically inserting false memories of trauma into people, this is why they got into the alien abductee study business. They said, let's amass a group of people who have these memories, but that they're unlikely to have actually occurred. Uh, and, and I want to note here, too, very little of the research on alien abductions actually focuses on the practice of the hypnotherapy itself. Um, so the like broader review of all this stuff essentially recommends, look, we need to do further research into the dynamics of hypnotherapy before we really understand mm-hmm. the full parameters of what's happening here. Now, in part one of this two-parter on alien abduction, we, we talked a, a good bit about media scripts, cultural scripts, the idea that when something strange occurs, you have these pre-existing narratives to draw upon to explain it, uh, be it something, be it, you know, magical fairies or ghosts or alien abduction. And uh, there's a there's actually an interesting argument here that like it's easy to get lost in the, the space age sci fi aspects of alien abduction and think, well, this is something wholly new. Mm. This is something that that just you know, appears in the wake of the Second World War and becomes the new cultural script for paranormal experience. But uh, it has a lot in common with older models as well. And this is explored in a in an article titled, He's Making Me Feel Things in My Body That I Don't Feel. This was by uh, Patricia Felicia Barbado, and it was published in the Journal of American Culture. The subtitle, The Body as Battleground in Accounts of Alien Abduction. So, she makes the case that the late 20th century alien abduction story is essentially powered by the 17th through 19th century American obsession with the Native American captivity uh, narrative. Uh, so I don't know if everyone's familiar with this. If you've watched a lot of Westerns, you may have come across this. And yeah. certainly if you've, if you've studied history, uh, I imagine this has come up on Stuff You Missed in History Class, our, uh, our sister podcast uh, uh, here at, uh, at How Stuff Works. Uh, but basically you had, you had these, uh, these incidents where, uh, and, and then the resulting tales and of course fictionalizations in many cases, uh, where a Caucasian woman was abducted and brutalized by, uh, by Native American tribes and in many cases absorbed irreversibly into their culture. I want to say this comes up in the, 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 the John Wayne movie, The Searchers. Okay. They, I've never seen The Searchers, but I immediately jumped to a more recent movie, Bone Tomahawk, which you and I both sort of enjoyed. Yeah, that plays on a similar narrative. The yeah. idea that the, you know, the, the cultural other, the barbaric cultural other has come and taken someone away. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of fictionalization there, but of course there were incidents of, of things like this occurring. And then there were the, the, the idea of reclaiming someone from that ended up being far more problematic because either they right. were irreversibly assimilated into that culture to varying degrees, or there was just, there was at the very least a lot of trauma had taken place. Uh, maybe the most like popular film that people would be familiar with that, that, that this trope showed up in is, uh, dances with wolves because, um, Mary McCormick, her character okay. is Caucasian and she's been living with a native tribe since she was a kid, mm-hmm. like basically raised among them. Yeah. Okay. So I, I either haven't seen it or it's been so long that I don't remember anything about it. But yeah, I think that that very much plays on it. And the, the thing is that these, there were accounts of these abductions published in the thousands. So yeah, this was, is like the boogeyman of that time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was everywhere. And, um, so the idea here is that the captive woman in these accounts serves as a kind of physical battleground for the premise 
of noble white superiority over the you know the dark savage tribal other from beyond the frontier so the the racist boundary here only exists artificially of course but the the captivity experience tears apart the fiction in no time yeah, so here's what uh, Barbado has to say quote but while accounts of alien abduction present us with stark racial spatial and cultural differences human and alien Earth and outer space, technology and nature that are reminiscent of Indian captivity narrative, they do so only to turn our attention to the way that the captive's body uh, completely fails to impose boundaries between them. It's interesting, like, that, like, we used to other human beings that were from different cultures, and then we hit this point in the 20th century where I mean, it's not to say that we don't demonize other people because we certainly still do, mm -hmm. but that we became sort of more of a, you know, whatever you want to call it, global village enough that you could sympathize with most other cultures. So then the othering had to turn into something outside of Earth. Yeah. So, th I mean, that's that's just one one example of the kind of like deep cultural an analyses that uh, that that can and do take place concerning the alien abduction narrative. Like not only where does it come from, but why does it have so much uh, so much power over us? Mm. I mean, you get into this a lot with with fiction, right, yeah. where you have like revenge tales. Revenge tales have always been popular. The revenge tale itself hasn't really changed, but it, we just continually update it for our our modern, uh, our modern world, and, uh, and whatever the the, the latest uh, technological or cultural trend happens to be. Yeah, this is true. I think you could probably like look at any year's worth of films, and you can like drop a pin and be like, okay, there's the revenge tale of the year, right? Like, yeah. uh, I guess this year's would be like Atomic Blonde. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but but it does make. I want to see a, a like a version of The Searchers with alien abduction in it, but not cowboys versus aliens. Something. something I think different. you. I think you just like like opened up a bank account for somebody in Hollywood. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let's take a break, and when we come back, we will uh, we'll dive deeper into the angst of the twentieth century. All right, we're back. So. There's this 2016 Boston Globe article that had a really interesting take on the alien abduction phenomena, and it found the following themes were essentially social currents that all fed into alien abductions over the last few decades. The first one we already mentioned, space exploration in the uh, 50s and 60s. Then you've got the Cold War. That's inspiring a fear of invasion, so you get stuff like uh, invasion of the body snatchers, mm -hmm. et cetera. And then out-of-body experiences that we were having, whether it be from mysticism or from drugs. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you factor in the rise of the, the counterculture movement and psychedelic yeah. experience on top of all of this. Totally. And then the 1980s fear of strangers. Now, this is something that was easy for me to forget because, you know, we grew up in the 80s. But obviously it wasn't like that before then, right? There, uh, But there were so many stories about child abduction and sexual molestation being reported in the news that this became like a common cultural narrative. So you, you get all four of those together, you, you, you know, stir them up in a pot together and you get a perfect brew for alien abduction stories. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an interesting thing. That I, again, X-Files fan over here. I didn't know this. Apparently, Chris Carter uh, was at San Diego Comic-Con one year. Chris Carter is the guy who was the showrunner and creator of the X-Files. And he said, you know why the show stopped working? It was because of 9-11. Huh. And he said the mood wasn't right anymore. That, like, there was something about 9-11 that made the, the, like, 
the magic of the X-Files stick that was gone. Huh. I don't know. I, I've watched a lot of X-Files. I think the show had pretty much petered out. But. Well, yeah, and it's not like we, <laughs> we abandoned magical uh, the narratives after 9-11. Yeah, exactly. I mean, certainly there was probably more of a, I mean, did did stuff like, uh, was it 24? Did that come out post 9-11? Yeah, I'm pretty sure, okay. yeah. So maybe there was, I could see where there was an opening for, for stories that sort of, you know, deliver the type of content that might resonate more in the wake of 9-11, but certainly we still were into aliens. We're still into yeah. ghosts and, I mean, all the ghost hunter shows seem to have come, sprung up in the, the wake of that. Very much, so, yeah. Did you ever watch that show Fringe? I, I watched a little of it. It looked, it was one of those shows that, that looked really cool, but I just didn't get hooked in. It, for it was reason. fun. It took me a while to like really get cemented into it, but once, I'd say like after the second season, I was like a diehard follower mm-hmm. of it, but, um, that show did a good job of taking 9-11's trauma and mixing it in with the, the like general paranormal stuff that the X-Files huh. was playing around with. Yeah, um, and I think that that is probably part of why it was successful. But also, I have to say, Chris Carter uh, just wasn't writing great stuff anymore, man. I mean, if you saw any of that X-Files revival last year, like all the episodes that he wrote were just like cringeworthy. Oh, okay. Uh, whereas like the other guys who came back did the, some of the best work, like Darren Morgan, who I was talking about last time, Glenn Morgan, and um, I believe it's James Wong. Okay. Well, uh, you know, another source that uh, that I was looking at in terms of figuring out the, the, the cultural uh, resonance of all of this uh, is a wonderful uh, paper, and this is available online if you look it up. It's called, Is It Tomorrow or Just the End of Time? UFO Culture and Cultural Anxiety. And this is by Connie Samaras. And she's primarily a photographer and video artist based out of L.A., but she put together this wonderful paper that it references a lot of like deeper literature on it, but she, I think she does a, a wonderful job of just sort of summarizing uh what's uh, some of what might be going on yeah i read over part of this too and it, from my perspective it looked like she was doing the opposite of what the the literature review was in academia she was reviewing the phenomena but not looking at all the like academic articles but more looking at the experiential narratives and yeah. compiling them together so she was uh in, in part of the article she was pointing to a 1992 intruders foundation funded roper poll intruders foundation is a you know, a, a group that was, um, you know, aligned with alien abduction experiences and you know, the, the study of them. Uh, anyway, to, to determine the percentage of the U.S. population abducted by aliens and some of the we already hit on some of the the, the big uh, findings that have come out over the year in terms of uh, you know percentage of the population that's expressed these things. But here are some of the more particular findings that she highlights here. It's a largely industrialized northern hemisphere phenomenon, uh, mostly a U.S. phenomenon. Uh, abductees are mostly white and middle class. And, uh, you know, it's worth noting again that the first major case of alleged alien abduction was that of Barney and Betty Hill. This was a, a, um, an African American male and a white female. Right. As we mentioned last episode, that plays against the stereotype. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And because, uh, for one thing, the majority of abductees are, win- are actually women. Uh, though most of the movies and TV representations involve men. And of course, that just gets into the, you know, the, the sort of the sexist nature of our, our narratives, especially for most of the 20th century. Right. If you're going to make a TV show or a movie about it or a book, it's going to be based around a male 
uh, uh, male character. Right, yeah, yeah. But that ends up sort of skewing your public idea of who's experiencing these in the real world. And there's also the, like, this is related to the shark thing we were talking about last time. There's, like, a, a kind of, like, gross, I don't know, voyeurism about, like, the alien abduction experience being performed on a woman, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that, like, a woman in a bikini getting eaten by a great white shark is somehow voyeuristic as well. Yeah. There's not, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something weird going on there. Well, it's like you're taking a, you're taking a, a potentially, you know, unsettling and unsavory uh, real world scenario and you're like, you're just subbing in a fantastic element, yeah. but you're left with kind of the same traumatic event. To your point, though, reproduction is a common theme in these abduction uh, tales. They might be like a pregnancy test, some sort of a false pregnancy egg uh, harvesting, uh, you know, some sort of reproduction tinkering, which, again, that that is something that is falls in line with, uh, you know, incubi and succubi accounts and folklore, uh, you know, uh, throughout European history. But but at any rate, there's the, there's also this standardized alien description. We've talked about the sort of embryonic looking uh, grays. Mm -hmm. You see this uh, the, this uh, use of telepathy, especially between like the, the, the leader alien and the the subject. The anal probing of males, which we haven't we haven't spent a lot of time with that. I feel like you got to work up to anal probing. Well, there's also Connie Samaris's uh, article on this. The wording is wonderful, and how mm -hmm. she she talks about how that it's so we're so specifically worried about male abductees being probed, and yet there's very little talk about female abductees being yeah. probed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, on top of the probing, sometimes there's this element of seduction by the examiner alien. And most of these, she points out, are vastly heterosexual in nature, like to huh. the point where it would seem, based on these accounts, that aliens never uh, abduct uh, like a, you know, a gay, lesbian or bisexual individual. Huh. Uh, but uh, so, so we have to sort of factor that into the whole, you know, psychoanalysis of what's going on. Uh, PTSD, nightmares afterward. We've already touched on that. Mm -hmm. um, this is interesting. The idea that sometimes these run in the family. That there's okay. like a family legacy of alien abduction scenarios. So it's like Jaws, like the the, <laughs> the shark keeps coming after the same family members. Yeah, like I, this is something I want to see in alien abduction fiction more. The idea that huh. it runs in the family, like it puts a weird spin on it. Yeah. Then there's the the introduction of the idea that aliens will eventually bring about wide sweeping social change, and this is this is interesting because it brings up the idea like is this in a way. You know, this is this is taking the trauma and the nightmare and twisting it into something more hopeful, something yeah. fantastic, but also getting into this idea that is that the only way that that sometimes we can perceive sweeping social change? It right. Has to be, it has to come from the outside and it can't come from within. This reminds me of a quote that I've mentioned on the show before, uh, and I'm having a hard time placing where it came from. So sorry, listeners, but uh, it goes something like this. It's easier for us to imagine an apocalypse than it is mm -hmm. for us to imagine a positive society that doesn't exist within capitalism. Right. Like it's so hard to imagine something that's outside of our frame of reference that the only no, the only way we know how to imagine it is uh, is by destroying it. Oh, I know. It was Frederick Jameson who said that. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, this this uh, factors into a lot of the writings about alien abduction and, and certainly scenarios where it takes on this hopeful, uh, you know, messengers from beyond 
um, you know, coming here to make the world a better place, that one of the other big elements of the 20th century is this angst over what we're doing to the planet, over yeah. over pollution, over over the, the 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 threat of nuclear annihilation. This all comes to hang over even the average individual's head. And then how do we how do we process that? And how do we how does it factor into these experiences? You know what? I'm gonna go I'm gonna go down a little bit of a sidebar here, but that's why we did two episodes. <laughs> uh, I've been experiencing this lately and I haven't, I haven't felt this way since like the, uh, I guess early nineties, the cold war fear of the nuke, Yeah, you know, like that was something that I thought we were done with, that I had kind of gotten to a point in my consciousness where I wasn't always worrying like, well, it could just happen at any time, you know, and like, um, the fear of nuclear winter and all, all these things that like, you know, you saw a lot of this manifest in 1980s uh, films and now with all this stuff ramping up with North Korea, uh, b- between the United States and North Korea, for those of you that aren't American, back and forth, there's, our media is very much like, oh my God, like they've got ICBMs. What's going to happen? You know, like I even, like talking to my mother, she was like, well, you got to be careful where you live in the United States now. You don't want to live on the West Coast because you could just get bombed by the North Koreans. And I was like, whoa, like <laughs> where did that come from? You know? Yeah. Um, we're right back there. Yeah, well, I mean, p- part of the, the disturbing answer is that you know the, the risk of nuclear war never went away. It's right. it has it has remained this whole time, and and there have been there have been you know a number of very committed individuals working around the world to try and get us to a better place where it's 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 less likely to occur. But yeah. the, the reality is that we we have these weapons, and we have weapon systems set up to to make it happen at the at any moment and those the, the humans and the systems are both both fallible. Yeah. So um I I wonder if situation. we're going to start to see a resurgence in uh those kind of fears though again in yeah. in our fiction I mean. Yeah, I would I it will be interesting to see if it's just a com- if it's a complete rehash of how we manifested those fears before if there is some sort of new spin on it that yeah. I, you know that we can't quite expect. All right. Well, on that note, uh, on the note of nuclear annihilation, let's take another break. And when we come back, we will continue to discuss uh, this uh, this paper by uh, Connie Samaras and uh, and just the overall uh, alien abduction scenario. All right, we're back. So uh, Samaras brings up two key individuals, um, and they're they're alien abduction abduction researchers. And I wasn't really that familiar with with either of them, mm-hmm. but they're both fascinating in their own right. So the first is Bob Hopkins. This is a guy who advocated the physical reality of aliens. Like he believed that alien abductions were actually happening, and that that we should be studying and listening to to, to the individuals who experience them, and you know, and, and figuring out how to help them. Uh, but he also, interestingly enough, believed that media representations could be coloring the experiences as well, which I, I find interesting because it's, as we've already mentioned, we want to, we, we tend to want to fall into a, you know, a skeptic or believer, uh, dichotomy here. The idea that either alien abduction is happening or it is this, you know, skeptical model where people are having false memories, et cetera. Yeah. And even Bud Hopkins, who's more of a, a literalist here is or was saying that, well, hey, we could have this situation where it's actually happening, but then our sci-fi is coloring the experience as well. And then there's this other individual, and this guy is really fascinating, John E. Mack. 
Yeah, this guy is all over the alien abduction literature, and, mm-hmm. and rightly so. He had a bestseller in the early 90s about the research that he was doing. We're, we're going to go in a lot into Johnny Mac. Yeah, so he was a psychiatrist and a parapsychologist. I mean, he kind of started out as more of a pure skeptic. But then as he, he moved along, he's researching, he's talking to individuals, he ends up taking on uh, this more of a this more of the spiritual model of what's happening is he's seeing it as a spi- spiritual experimental phenomenon in keeping with past quote visionary encounters experienced by humans around the world which on one hand is saying you know that's what we've been saying like yeah. clearly we've been having the same experiences throughout human history and we just wrap it up in different wrappers but he ends up saying that there's something there is something truly amazing happening beyond like human uh, understanding. Mac is one of these figures. We, we come across the, these characters occasionally. They're sort of like stuff to blow your mind icons, like these sort of legendary figures. And he actually passed away in 2004, but I'm thinking of like Sasha Shulgin or John C. Lilly or, mm-hmm. or Jack Parsons, right? Yeah. These like these thinkers that were like, they had one leg in science and one leg in something else, right? And he's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. He really has a leg in both. Both areas. He's able to, I think, piss off people on both sides. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I ran across a Nova interview with him, and uh, he said that one of our our problems is that we want to explain alien abduction phenomena as either a literal encounter or with aliens, or or it's some sort of a spiritual situation. And he argues that it's something in between, uh, or it could be something in between. So I have a quote here from him. He says. Quote, so the simple answer would be yes, it's both. It's both literally physically happening to a degree, and it's also some kind of psychological spiritual experience occurring and originating perhaps in another dimension. And so the phenomenon stretches us, or it asks us to stretch to open to realities that are not simply the literal physical world, but to extend to the possibility that there are other unseen realities from which our consciousness, our, if you will, learning processes over the past several hundred years have closed us off. So I, I, I think that's, uh, I, I'm surprised this guy doesn't, didn't really amass a full cult following like a, a yeah a pure religious following based on the, the way he was navigating like both interpretations here yeah i told you this before we came into the studio actually i read an interesting bio piece about him and then other researchers so both mcnally and clancy who i've been citing throughout these two episodes were also mm-hmm. at harvard university at the same time mac was and there was conflict between their their views about the alien abduction experience it was interesting in that piece they described the alien abductee that Mac worked with as being like acolytes to him, like uh-huh. the, the way that he was framing what was happening to them was so appealing that it, it did almost have a kind of cultish quality to it. Yes. Yeah, so Samaras uh, summarizes, she says, the main drive of people like Mac, uh, Jacobs and Hopkins is to assure us that these are not the delusions of psychotic people, primarily women, but rather the true experiences of normal everyday people suffering great anguish, silence and stress about having absolutely no control over repeated violations of their psyches and bodies. Mm. Uh, And I think that's that's rather telling, too, because you also get down to. I think the skeptical view here and saying, well, you know, what kind of traumas, what kind of feelings about your place in the world are at the heart of, of these, the, of, you know, false memories and, you know, fantastic experiences that are reported. I think, let, let me see if I can try to frame this in a way, although, you know, he's passed, so I don't know how well I can do this, but it seems to me that what Mac was trying to do was 
begin a line of inquiry into what was going on with alien abduction that wasn't immediately hostile in its skepticism, right? Mm -hmm. That wasn't immediately saying you're a liar or you've been duped by an evil hypnotherapist, right? right? Like he was trying to unpack it in a way that had sympathy for these victims, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he wasn't quite all the way there to the, like, the empirical unpacking that McNally and Clancy got to with sleep paralysis and false memory implantation. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, just based on that quote that I, I read earlier, you can tell that there is a, there is a, like, a spiritual element to his interpretation that is just not going to sit well with, with skeptical audiences. Right, yeah. Now, uh, another, point that uh, Samaras makes is she says that, there, that in all of these alien abduction scenarios, there are other elements of, quote, quote, progressive social order, racism, homophobia, heterosexual angst, fear of white dominance, desire by white people to be dominated and taken, gender uh, dysphoria. So she and she also argues that there's a, you know, obviously a lot of sexual abuse and a general co-opting of feminist sexual abuse language by males. OK, which is interesting. So that you, is interesting. Yeah. So you end up with these these scenarios where a, you know, a, a white middle class American male in the 70s or 80s is having this experience where he's lost control mm-hmm. and is sexually violated by this outside force. And so you can instantly think to a number of different cultural elements that could be. Yeah. That could be influencing that. Like, is this individual, like, is he afraid of the, is there some sort of like a deep hidden fear of, of like what's going on in the, in the gay rights movement at sure, the time? Yeah, yeah. Cultural change in that regard? Just trying to wrap your head around that. Yeah. Right? R- like wrapping your, like if you're, I'm, I'm again, like I'm picturing like a real like madman type character here. Who's yeah. Like very straight laced kind of by the books suburban straight white man who's in power right right and like trying to wrap your head around gay rights or trying to wrap your head around what was going on with women in the 70s when they were coming forward with stories about sexual abuse stuff that used to be covered up you know i mean like maybe that's what what part of this was was them trying to understand it by by making it about themselves yeah yeah trying to like, women's rights being a, a big issue and a, and, a, and a, you know reproductive rights especially yeah. like you can imagine this being sort of the weird treatment of that i mean that's that's one of the the academic reads on uh, ridley scott's alien is that yeah you're you're taking a lot of like sexual violence and sexual biology for the female and transforming it into a, a, a horrific male experience. Yeah, I feel like there is, uh, and maybe this is out there and we just, because there was so much research, we couldn't tap into it, but there's like definitely a feminist read on, on this whole phenomena, right? That you could kind of take a look at it and see like, why is it that like, for instance, like what you were saying earlier that like in these stories, women are the ones who are self-reporting more than men, but then subsequently media representations are more about men than they are about women. Like there's, there's all kinds of things that are related to gender with this, mm-hmm. which is not something I expected to come away with when we dove into the research. Yeah. Me, me neither. Now, the other thing that's interesting here, too, is she is hearkening back to the um, study that we briefly mentioned about Baumeister and Newman, where they were essentially saying, like, yeah, this whole thing is about essentially the victims are masochists and they just like want to be uh, dominated. Yes. And, you know, this comes up if, if we both end up seeing fire in the sky. Mm. Uh, I know this will come into play when we look at the um, at, at the scene uh, where the aliens abduct the individual and perform experiments, because it is. 
it is very bondagey. Oh, is it, that right? Like essentially, that like the the individual is like sealed under a vinyl sheet. Okay, and then they sit, like cut through the sheet in order to probe them. But they they seem to do a pretty fantastic job of drawing upon actual alien abduction uh, related experiences, sort of nightmaric uh, cinematic dream scenarios, and also uh, BDSM culture. Like they somehow right. wrap it all up in a. In a, in a fresh package. Well, I'm looking for forward series. to checking it out. I noticed it's on Amazon Prime, so I'm going to try to watch oh, it. Oh, good. Uh, and, and again, I haven't seen it, but from what I saw in the trailer, Communion seems to have a sort of similar vibe to it as well. Oh, yeah. Communion is a, that's a, that is a, a whole, uh, that's a, that's a whole kettle of fish unto itself with the author Whitley Strieber. Uh, it was like a 1987 publication. Uh, Communion, a true story. Uh, was the name of the book, and then it was made into a film with uh, Christopher Walken. I right, believe. yeah. Uh, yeah, the trailer looks a little ludicrous because of our sort of associations with Christopher Walken now in that voice, mm-hmm. but it, it seems menacing. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it came up in some of the research here because I know that he was kind of he was kind of a d- d- divisive figure even within like alien abduction communities. Oh, like, yeah. There were there was at least uh, one of one of the there was one critic in particular I think that was was not happy with the like the sexual aspects of mm-hmm. his uh his alleged encounters and they were just kind of, they were kind of ridiculing him within the alien abduction community. All right. Well, I'm going to try to do my homework before we hit a trailer talk uh which would be the trailer talk will actually come out probably the day <laughs> after this episode airs, but for for all of you, I'll have like a good 7 days. Now, I want to come back around to Mac again because yes. there's this interesting thing that's going on at Harvard University. Back in 2003, it was ground zero for this debate over what was actually going on with alien abduction. So you got John Mack on one side and Susan Clancy and Richard McNally on another, and they're all there. Mack argued that the experiences couldn't be understood in the Western rationalist tradition of science, while you've got McNally and Clancy countering, well, actually, Mac, the answer to alien abduction is, is is very simple. And then they outline, you know, they say, we don't think the abductees are lying, but that Mac himself is just entertaining far-fetched ideas in relation. Right. He's not really, it, it doesn't seem like he's really using Occam's razor here, right? Yeah. I, yeah. And uh, so this was actually quite a problem for Harvard University. Uh, it, so to be clear here, though, I don't want to malign Mac. This guy performed hypnotherapy on his patients and published 13 of those encounters in his book, which I mentioned earlier as being very popular. He was a firm believer in that practice, and he believed he retrieved his own memories of his mother's death, which occurred when he was eight months old. So that's Hmm. how much of a proponent he was for hypnotherapy. He was said to prize the experiential narrative over empirical data. So you can see where scientists would feel like, well, that's definitely drawing a line in the sand that we don't want to be on that side of. Uh, Now, So to give you a sort of outline of his Harvard experience, he was on the faculty there since 1955. And then in 1982, he founded the Center for Psychology and Social Change there. His work often straddled conventional science and altered states of consciousness. Sounds just like our kind of guy. When he founded the Department of Psychiatry at the Cambridge Hospital in 1969, this ended up attracting innovative Eastern-oriented psychiatrists. And then Mack himself studied the guided meditation of Werner Erhard, as well as Stanislav Grob's holotropic 
breathwork, which essentially seeks to induce an altered state through rapid breathing. Now, the faculty at Harvard were not thrilled with all this and especially with his alien abduction research. So they actually had a committee conduct a 15-month investigation into his work. But at the end of all that, there was no, no formal censure. Essentially, the interviews with like the, the head of the department, he was just like, look, we just want him to be empirical about the way he's going about this. That's all. Um, but I don't think they could find anything that was like enough for them to, you know, right. get rid of him. But to be clear here, Mac distanced himself from whether or not aliens were real. Every time somebody asked him about that, he said, you know, what I'm more interested in is a consensus reality that we've created that precludes us from ever entertaining the idea of alien abductions. Hmm. So he's more interested, again, in the sort of cultural reality. So this is kind of fascinating, this guy. Like, he was countercultural in his own way, but at the same time, he wasn't, like, fully... Uh, dipping his toe into the alien abduction experience. And then he's got, you know, l- later in his career, he's got these colleagues who show up at Harvard and they're like, actually, like, we think we've got the answer here. It looks, looks pretty straightforward. We think it's uh, sleep paralysis combined with mm-hmm. magical thinking combined with false memory implantation. Yeah. And then he's saying, no, I'm, I'm not quite, I'm not quite ready to admit that. I think there is yeah. this, there's this middle ground and we haven't quite explored it. Yeah. It, I think all of this presents an interesting vision, though, that, that you know, that of people who felt the weight of, of a century of, of technological and social change, who then experienced something or assumed the experience in varying ways that allowed them to testify to it physically. You know, yeah. it's almost I, I really almost get the sense of of, of, of people I and mean, not just like scattered individuals, but like large groups of people in the second half of the 20th century who really felt lost and unmoored and just powerless in what was happening. And this was, this was kind of a way to, to connect part of them, uh, to, a to, to some sort of a guiding force. Yeah. And while I've never had any kind of alien abduction experience growing up in that period of time, and you know, I'm an adult now, I look back and I, I have sympathy for that. Like there's yeah. a certain amount of that that makes sense, you know, the feeling like, there wasn't anything that was really grounding me to the community I existed in. Um, let's do a quick review of of what we came to here, and then I think we can close out this two-parter. Yeah. So, all right, what do we understand about alien abduction scientifically? There doesn't appear to be any difference between abductees and the general population in terms of their psychopathology and their personality type. So we established that. But – There do seem to be individual factors that can increase the likelihood of people developing false memories for alien abduction. And the biggest of these is the belief and interest in paranormal phenomena. When you combine that with a susceptibility to hypnotic suggestions, individuals can interpret events like sleep paralysis as alien abduction events. Then it's possible for abductees to recover those false memories that have been accidentally implanted over the course of hypnotherapy. And I think, you know, from that review that I was going over from uh, Finkelstein, the big thing to take away from this is further research really seems to be needed into the hypnotherapy aspect of it, which was John Mack's sort of realm of inquiry, right? Like he was really into that. But what we need more research on is sort of the dynamics of how the hypnotherapy is interacting with the human consciousness. Yeah. And of course, there's so many questions then about suggestibility. And yeah, Uh, this is definitely one of those episodes where I feel like 
we we kind of end with more questions than we began. I mean, I, yeah. I I'm I'm still very much in the in the uh, the category of of saying that I do not think that aliens have visited our world, and I do not think that uh, that they have abducted people. But that doesn't make what's going on any less amazing and interesting, and 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 ultimately like a little mysterious. Yeah, because we we have to try and piece it all together, both the the scientific side of it and the cultural side of it, and that's that's where I think the really fascinating mysteries here are. And this is a phrase that stuff to blow your mind. Listeners are probably sick of me <laughs> making on the show, but it seems to me like these are canaries in a coal mine, right? That like. When you've got a, a subset of the population that is all – they're coming up with this narrative that's incredibly similar and we don't know where it's coming from. Rather than dismiss it, look at it and say, what is this saying about us? Like yeah. what's what's going on? And by, I don't mean that this is like a, a warning bell like, oh, aliens are real and they're going to attack or something. That's not what I mean. But that there's something going on psychologically that we need to understand better about ourselves before we proceed. Yeah, because the other side of it, too, is there, there were not only the individuals that that claim to have these experiences, but everybody else was eating it up and it still is eating it up. You know, so it's even if you're not directly participating in the uh, in the experience, you're still engaging in a vicarious experience with it. Like there's something about that alien abduction narrative that still speaks to uh, to so many uh, uh, denizens of the the 20th and 21st century. Yeah, I think I mentioned this to you, but uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is coming up on its 40th anniversary and they're oh, yeah? re-releasing it in theaters for a week. Mm-hmm. And my wife wants to go see it because she has fond memories of that film. And I, I really thought to myself for a second, I was like, I, I love that movie, but is that, is that a movie that like a lot of people want to go see in the theater again? And it, clearly it must be if they're going to put the effort into that kind of marketing. Yeah. And it makes you think, you know, 40 years later, there's still enough interest, even in that fictional, uh, version of it. That there's got to be something going on. There's some kind of bell that's ringing deep in the back of our mind. Hmm. All right. Well, as to what that bell is and why it's ringing, we would uh, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, we'd, we'd especially love to hear from you if you yourself have had a UFO or alien abduction experience. Uh, and and I'd love to just I'd love to uh, to read what you have to say in terms of uh, you know self analysis of that and dissecting that like what do you think was going on there yeah. um you know why did you why did you experience it and how have you how have you dealt with it since then and i really hope that like the way we've presented these two episodes on alien abduction have have shown that we are sympathetic to this experience but that we're trying to look at it through the lens of the research that's been done on it yeah i mean i just because i don't think the aliens are real it doesn't mean that i think that the experience is invalid or that the experience is not real uh, for a variety of reasons that we discussed in, in these episodes. So if you want to get in touch with us about that stuff, here are some ways you can do so. We're all over social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. And we're on Instagram. Uh, you can also visit our website, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you're going to find uh, these episodes. You're going to find all of our blog posts and all of our videos. In fact, uh, we do have an older episode back when uh, Julie was co-host mm-hmm. uh, about alien abduction too. So it might be nice to listen to that and kind of see like over the years, like what the transformation has been in, in our uh, perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Hey, and on Facebook we have the, uh, the, the discussion module. Check that out. That's our Facebook group. If you want a more, uh, you know, personal interaction with other stuff to blow your mind fans and with the, with the hosts, then you can go there. It's a new project we've rolled 
out, and uh, so far I think people are digging it. So uh, so check it out and see if it's for you. Or if you just want to write us personally, we'll have a like intimate discussion one on one. That would be on email, and it's at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.